Okay, cool. I see your audio showing up. Doug, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm a great fan of your YouTube channel, your writing, and we're going to talk about your recent possible shadow ban. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I uh, uh, I, I think of it more as a, as a moment where the channel was put into jeopardy altogether rather than just suppressed, but I think it may have been both because we got a community standards warning on the YouTube channel a while back and finally got it lifted. But yeah. And during that time afterward, during that time, after we got the, uh, the warning until we got it lifted, we went through a period where the number of views we were getting every day and the new subscribers went way down uh, well right. below norm. But I have to say coincidental with that was a change in how often I was posting YouTube videos. And so it could have been not related to anything algorithmic. It could have just been, I wasn't putting out the critical <laughs> cuts videos as often. Therefore everything went down. I don't know. Well, that's, that's part of what I'm discovering in this work. Myself and some friends at the new models podcast are trying to investigate some of these topics of shadow banning of pseudo institutional spaces that are popping up. We're all <laughs> refugees from the art world mm -hmm. um, and, and newly producing content and crowdfunding rather than working with institutions and collectors and what have you. Mm -hmm. So the topic of shadow ban is very interesting. I've been trying to talk with certain people and it seems um, similar to what you're describing. Everyone seems to be shadow banned or knows someone who is shadow banned and then okay, so give me the analytics, like what is happening to your account? And people are, oh, well, I, I don't have analytics enabled. I'm, I'm just getting less likes. Or it seems that shadow banning is maybe a piece of internet folklore. Some of these things are easily verifiable, but um, it's, it's very murky. So what I wanted to do uh, this afternoon as we're talking is go inside, look at these analytics, see how much traffic you actually lost. Okay, let, let's do that. Um, so let me, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the content page here. I've got the dashboard opened up for zero books YouTube channel. And we're going to try to remember just when I posted the video that caused offense, which was, um, about the great reset, although it was not actually, uh, pushing any conspiracies, uh, about the great Re reset. In fact, it was really about an American, uh, leftist critic named Christopher Lash, who's been dead since the nineties, but it was okay. It was November 24th, November 2024. Okay. So to start with, I'll just tell you a few things about what's going on with our channel. Now, um, last month we got around 2,500 to 2,800 new subscribers in the month. We get around 7,000 mm. views a day fluctuates, but the average is probably around at nine to 10,000 views, something like that on average. But the flat line, if the downslope would be around 7,000 when we don't have a new video out. So right now we have around 1,659 new subscribers in the last 28 days. So like 28 days ago, roughly would have been, been around 2,500. We've dropped by a thousand subscribers. Now, the difference is that a couple of things happened where, which pushed our subscriber rate up where it had been down to less than a thousand for a month. So I went on come town <laughs> and um, I uh, also interviewed Slavoj Zizek. Both those things, one after the other pushed our 
views up pushed our subscriber rate up. Now it's been a while since I've had a video that cracked more than 20,000 views. It's like the last one I did that did that. Mm. I believe it would have been on the Adam Curtis video I put out. Yeah, it was, that was February 20th. So that one has right now 25,000 views. Generally speaking, the Critical Cuts videos are our most successful videos, and the interview videos are far less successful. That's not always the case, obviously, like Sylvie Zizek was an exception. Richard Wolf was recently on the channel, and that was something of an exception, nowhere near as big of, of an exception as the Sylvie Zizek video. But the Richard Wolf one's cracked 10,000. The, the goal that we have is to hit 10,000 or more with every produced video that is not just an interview video. The Critical Cuts videos takes about three days to produce from initial script writing to final edit. And that's, and you can see that I'm, if you watch them consistently, you can see, I think, the rush usually <laughs> towards, towards the end of the video. Like at first, it's pop, 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 pop. And by the last five minutes, it's just these long cuts. It's like tired <laughs> out. Um, um, well, one of the one of the um, the psyops that you get when you look into these YouTube analytics really deeply is that they give you stats about how sticky your content is, and mm -hmm. people generally watch for the first thirty seconds, and then it dramatically drops off. For our channel, our videos, a critical cuts video will probably get about seven minutes, five mm -hmm. to seven minutes mm -hmm. as the average. So we have pretty good watch times. The, Those are the, very the, good in terms of YouTube stats. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's because we have a core audience that, uh, right. you know, that enjoys the content. Um, well, that's, uh, that's one of my questions is that uh, it seems to be that the drop in traffic is difficult to untether or untangle because you're doing, um, maybe you're hitting audience saturation during the lockdown. Maybe it's new content. Maybe streaming just doesn't perform as well as compared to the pre-scripted edited videos. And yeah. Yeah, but it does also seem extraordinarily suspicious that you would get this strike and then your traffic would go down. So one is very tempted to think that um, the thumb was on the scales for a certain period of it. Do you right. have Do you have a tight uh, window where your yeah, traffic went that, down? Let's, yeah, let's see. Like, if I can remember when it was the ban was lifted. I know it was um, the November twentieth. That the mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't really a ban. It was um, <clears throat> a content. Warning. So we had we violated community standards and received a warning. And if we did it again, then we would actually be punished. That was the idea, we, we, up to and including being thrown off the channel or thrown off YouTube altogether. That if we got it, if we did it again, it wasn't. It, it could have been a myriad of consequences, but that was one of them that would have been on the table. So I I, I want to say I, the way for me to find out when it was lifted is to go back through Twitter because I um tweeted at the youtube team account <laughs> i finally figured out to do that like in january that seems to be the way people do it yeah they put out you know this guy um cavernacle he's one of these bread tube guys he got uh, demonetized a few weeks back and you like have to make a video you have to mobilize your followers to be your advocate against like the youtube uh bureaucracy or or uh 
I mean, essentially, we're talking about someone who in, in the way I imagine this taking place is like, it's a precarious worker in Manila who views the page for 15 seconds, and hits like yes or no, and they are so incredibly overworked and don't have the time to like, really break down the context of all the things. So you put up a clip of Alex Jones saying misinformation about uh, uh, the pandemic or whatever. And they're like, Oh, yeah, flag this one on to the next. Right. Yeah. And so we appealed it too, you know, in the, uh, in the automated way and got rejected through that appeal. And it was only when I thought to tweet at team YouTube rather than at the, the main YouTube account um, that I started getting a response and it was, and that had happened after I'd gone on come town. So I was just trying to reach a mass audience or something like a mass audience and the come town audience not being particularly exclusively anyway, leftist I thought was a good place to go to uh i'm gonna just say it was january like it was january january um yeah it's maybe tempting for us to think that uh something like come town is a giant platform but in the scope of youtube just enormous channels that produce like clickbait content that is like nowhere in that uh ecosystem or, or whatever so um, yeah no i know but compared to us they're big. yeah yeah and also just on patreon in terms of podcasting right they they earn out uh, towards the top of the you know earners on Patreon. They make that's like what's so funny more. about Patreon though is that there's no like there's no recommendation algorithm, like it's all parallel. You would yeah. think you would think Patreon just you know of their own bootstrapping entrepreneurial wisdom, like they would suggest like oh here's three other frequently overlapping Patreons or podcasts you might be interested in or something like that. But I don't know why they haven't done that. Sorry, that's a digression. Let's not. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's get back to the uh, the analytics. Okay, so just want to go to November twentieth there uh, to January twentieth. Okay, in that period of time, we had three hundred and forty one thousand views overall, and uh, watch time of fifty seven thousand hours, and we had we gained. Uh, so that's over several months, right? Uh, November, December, and January. Now two months. Just so I have the dates here, are we talking, it's November 24th to January 20th or? November, I put down November 20th to January 20th, but it really was probably more like January 9th because that's where I see a spike. Uh, Huh. um, So anyhow, anyway, if it, if it was correlative, it would have been around January 9th. So uh, anyhow, that was about a thousand three hundred subscribers per month. And not tw- not per twenty eight days, but per per month. And after that, so I'm going to go back and change the custom feed. So those numbers, the three forty k views, fifty seven thousand hours, is in the period where you were uh, uh, deprioritized potentially. Well, theoretically deprioritized. Yeah, yeah theoretically, right? Yeah, right. And I, and I don't think I've ever really made a huge claim that that was what happened exactly. Although I suspected it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, everything, everything allegedly, we should say. Right, we're just, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We're just at, we're asking the question because we, we literally don't know. So nothing here is definitive. Yeah. So I'm going to put this through to, from that point till today to January. Yeah. January till today. And that from January to today, we've got um, 411,000 views, 75,000 hours, and um, around 4,000 new subscribers. So 3.9. So just just for comparison here, we were looking at a two-month period, 
November to January, and then January to March, uh, we're looking Today. at a similar window. Similar, uh-huh. Right, yeah, because we're recording just for um, for continuity here on March 17th. So it's, it's almost about the same, uh, and it seems like it's pretty significantly higher. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, 25% higher? Um, yeah. Is it something like that? Yeah, something like okay. that. But that's not um, totally outside the realm of possibility, but it is right. curious. Yeah. Well, you know, and I'm hoping, here's what I'm, I'm thinking actually, is that um, I may have been like, okay, I don't think that there's a button at YouTube that they press to shadow ban right. a channel. I think that there are, uh, it's a complicated algorithm that looks at a variety of things to determine how often you should be suggested uh, on the channel. And so for, for most YouTube YouTubers suggested views are a really big deal. And yeah, um, yeah. we had a period of time a couple of years ago where we were getting a lot of suggested views. It was how the channel grew from a, uh, just over a, a thousand or a couple thousand subscribers to over 10,000 in a very short amount of time. Can, and, uh, uh, sorry, what was the what was the period in which you had that growth spurt? I'll look. I'm going to look at the lifetime. Because you're you've been you were early, like you were on the ground floor. We started in 2016 making a, a, this channel, but it really didn't start start until January of 2017 or a little after. And it was when I started to make videos about Jordan Peterson. <laughs> that suddenly right. <laughs> had a big growth. Um, and I did that well, that's, pretty early. Um, but <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, look, so I, on the Twitch channel previous to this, I mean, it must have been what, like three months ago, something like that. We mm-hmm. did a combined probably 70 hours of streaming, meticulously combing through every channel of BreadTube. And the overwhelmingly uh, uh, clear trend is that everyone has an SEO-optimized refutation of Jordan Peterson. So it's <laughs> it's not surprising that those perform really well. I mean, yeah. he is I just an anomaly. I, I, I yes, think I was yeah. one of the first people to create a Jordan, anti-Jordan Peterson YouTube video, and I didn't do it because I thought it was going to... I swear, okay? I'm not just trying to be a hipster here. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I did it because I someone had shared a video of him with me on Facebook. Uh, someone who I like and, and um, who actually works at Zero Books as a reader had shared it to me as an example of how there's a problem on the left and we're, we're you know, as an example of like the rad libs going crazy um, and there were these transgender activists yelling at Jordan Peterson. And I looked at it and said, yeah, he looks like the more sane person here. But then I looked at Jordan Peterson a little bit and realized, oh, no, this guy's a reactionary, actually. I mean, not the worst kind of reactionary, but he's, you know, he's at, very, at the very least a very conservative figure. And he deserves to be criticized, maybe not by in this way that's happening in this video, but he deserves to be criticized and, and critiqued. So I made a video about him. And it was, you know, probably as those things go, it was one of the more sympathetic critiques. It's like, yeah, Jordan Peterson, he's speaking to something. He's he's addressing a real problem in the culture, probably. But, and then, 
you know, he's all, he's yeah. wrong yeah. about Marxism and everyone should read capital volume one. Um, <laughs> but only, in, only one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Volume one. Cause that's the one I know. Um, yeah. uh, well, anyhow. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I, I feel like you were early in on that. Um, I've, you know, I, I carry on an art career. I also write about these things sometimes. Now I mm-hmm. produce content as well. But I've always thought of your channel as an example of successful left-wing counter-messaging because uh, too often people just see the ground. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. important to make that a contested space. Uh, that being said, Jordan Peterson, now in the scope uh, compared to 2016, that is one of the healthier outcomes these oh, other yeah. channels you could get into that there's no fixing it. Uh, right. I mean, you know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't hate Jordan Peterson. And I actually, I mean, one of the reasons I did a video about him originally was because just on a kind of aesthetic level, I liked him. Mm-hmm. Like I thought he was, I, I noticed that someone else pointed this out later on, but it, like the people who liked Jordan Peterson were maybe likely to like Slovo Zizek too. Right. Right. And, and it, uh, so there was, um, a kind of approach that he had that was a little folksy and he seemed like he was willing to break with taboos and say things that maybe were out, outside the norm and all that. So I, I, I didn't dislike him like off the bat, but I just realized as I listened to him. Yeah, no, he's leading people to an apolitical individualism and he really does have a conservative position overall. Like, but in any case, he was worthy of critique and most of all he was worthy of critique because of his anti-marxism which i think was leading people to be um apathetic politically like uh the idea that every individual should first and foremost be concerned about succeeding as an individual rather than working to change society that's that's got to go that idea is is backwards i think You, you can't you have to do both and i think that the conclusion of Peterson as a threat to the left was the Peterson Zizek debates. Right. Because I thought Zizek did a good enough job of humanizing the left in that debate and showing Peterson to have very severe limits in his intellectual ability, in his knowledge, in his base of knowledge. And I thought that was a really good outcome for the whole thing. Peterson's back now, but I think he may be a severely diminished figure. Yeah, I think when you're humbled like that, it's uh, it's difficult to mount a comeback. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but it's yeah, it's I mean, difficult. His persona is not is humble in a way to start with, so he could. But the the easy answer to him is, well, you're a self help guy who you know almost died. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of <laughs> self defeating. Um, uh, can I ask you about yeah, uh, Zizek though? Uh, yeah, yeah. In, in, because I'm trying to weigh in my head these two periods, these two uh, uh, the control variable and then the potential deboosting, deprioritization, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm trying to factor into you know approximately. I haven't done the math, but like a a 25% drop or something like that. That Mm. includes getting, you know, one of the most successful public intellectuals now on your channel and also the appearance on Comtown. So adjusting for that. Well, okay. Now the, the interview with Zizek came after uh, the, the lifting of the ban. Uh, Okay. Okay. I mean, after the lifting of the community warning, which we're assuming correlates to some sort of shadow ban, right? So for the sake of argument, so that factors in, it did come after factors into the rise for sure. As does the appearance on come factor into the rise. So 
again, it's not clear that what accounted for it was some change in the algorithm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would say we are now sloping back down and it's certainly not because of any community standards uh, warning because we don't have one. So one of the things about this is that YouTube as a content creator, you mentioned it like, why doesn't Patreon have something like its own algorithm to recommend uh, mm-hmm. the, the Patreon, Patreon pages to people? The fact that YouTube does means that you can go through what looks like a shadow ban simply when the algorithm changes. Yeah. People right. who did real well with long form content uh, or who with short videos, say, might do much more poorly after they change the algorithm to emphasize watch time. Or if they're now emphasizing shorts, people are doing making shorts are going to be getting lots more views. And it will seem like old channels that were very, very successful are suddenly shadow banned. So I I suspect that a good portion of the things that look like shadow banning aren't. But I also think that you're told when you've community when you violated community standards and you're being suppressed, they that will be they'll they'll tell you directly on YouTube that, that that's happening. Like you can't upload or you can't do live streams or hmm. things like that. Hmm. Um, well, that's hmm, hmm. Okay. So I think uh that's that's what happened in your experience for sure. Some of the meme accounts that I've been talking to, obviously these platforms are not really comparable, but seemingly Instagram just uh turns off the faucet every now and then oh, on yeah. a lot of these accounts. So yeah. No, I, yeah. I like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I think what's going on there is different than what's going on on YouTube. Really controlled, very, very, very controlled kind of content recommender. Like if the yeah. first, I saw a video um, where it, the guy drew a glacier and you know, or no, um, an iceberg, and um, said, you know, at, on YouTube, you you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg only with a real iceberg, there would be far less ice underneath the surface than there is with YouTube. There are billions <laughs> of hours of mm-hmm. stuff that no one ever sees on YouTube. So it's only the algorithm that, put, that creates this visibility for content at all. Um, otherwise, if you're just, if you're just brand new without some outside viability and some outside fame to direct people to the YouTube channel, mm-hmm. you would just posting the YouTube channel itself would never you know drag you up to the surface and except for the way the algorithm responds to to views that do come in based maybe on searches or something like that so like for the Jordan Peterson thing people were searching for Jordan Peterson right our our YouTube videos got recommended and then they were recommended and viewed long enough that YouTube itself started recommending them and that's why we grew yeah yeah it's um I think with a channel of your size, I was going to bring up um, churn and audience saturation. I, I don't think that you're oversaturating your audience because the it's it's really such a widespread. It's not like something really niche and narrow that it's much more likely that it's an algorithmic change. And that is totally opaque. I was going to meetings for a tech socialist group in NYC here for a while. And one of the political demands that they floated that was discussed, but never really, I think, considered a thing that you could seriously implement would be algorithmic transparency on some of these platforms that if uh, I imagine for you, YouTube is a portion of your income. For me, Patreon is a very significant portion of my income. Mm -hmm. And um, 
when those algorithms shift, it could be, you know, oh, you just uh, got your wages docked by 20% this month. Like, wait, what? How did that happen? Like, when um, when did I sign off? Well, I guess that's the terms of service. But so uh, wait, let me ask you something about that. So do you feel like when your views decline on YouTube or on Instagram or anywhere that that immediately translates into a decline in support on Patreon? Well, the, 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 this is the trouble too, because, um, but as soon as I got shot, we grew on Patreon right during our decline, but that's, that's the thing because the patrons really care. So they're going to hang on that extra month until you're out of shadow ban. So you have to <laughs> counterbalance these things. It's really, right. it's maddening. You become so paranoid. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I would say that. I'm now totally uh, terrified to post anything, and I'm very conservative. I mean, I was re- I was really shit posting, flying close to the sun, and and all sorts of oh, crazy yeah, yeah. things on Instagram. So it's in, to some degree it's understandable, but I would have appreciated a warning at the least, you know, because yeah. it's a perverse incentive structure is the other thing because you have to optimize. You want to basically ride as close as you can to the terms of service. Do you know? edgy types of stuff to attract views and, and uh, controversy marketing and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're incentivizing you to misbehave and then punishing you for when you actually do it. And it would be maybe really helpful to have just like very clear demarcations of what is over the lines of the terms of service. Um, friends of mine from the art world, Ava and Franco Matez, uh, worked with the journalist Adrian Chen to... Uh, find out some of these things. This is back uh, years ago. It might've been 2015 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they posted, um, I think I can say this. <laughs> uh, it's part of their artist talk. So I, th- I, I don't know if they've recorded it anywhere, but I'll, I'll, I'll just relay the story here. Um, they posted ads on Craigslist to hire content moderators. And, um, you know, all of these people work for third-party companies. They clock in for whoever, whoever. Google of YouTube of a million different people, they often don't know what platform they're working for. Mm -hmm. And they started these conversations. They later revealed that they were artists and they weren't actually hiring people to do content moderation. And then they asked them to anonymously submit the PDFs that explicitly outlined the terms of service for these various pages. And seeing those, they turned them into wall works and uh, uh, sculptures that hang on the wall of an art gallery. And it was like really clear, like if it's, 30% 30% of a nipple, or if it's, uh, you know, this type of a suggestive image, and they give you visual references. This is inappropriate. This is allowed. Mm. But it seems like that I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to, uh, to ask for those things. I don't know, maybe one, maybe someone has to go undercover to actually get the PDF from Instagram or YouTube or, or somebody. Yeah, well, I think recently on Facebook and Twitter and pro- probably Instagram, which is just Facebook, right? Right. Um, uh, there has been a change in uh, terms of service or what would, would be acceptable. Because I've noticed a number of leftists getting suddenly banned uh, on on Facebook, particularly because you know I'm 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 on Boomer Book as a I'm right. a Gen Xer, but you know <laughs> um, I'm still stuck on on Facebook, but. Y- yeah, I, I definitely think it would be worthwhile to demand transparency, especially of those kinds of social media outlets. And with YouTube, I think that maybe they can't tell us every bit of how the algorithm is working. I wonder if there's even if it's possible for a single person to know, you know, like maybe needs an AI to figure mm-hmm. out the AI. But 
they can certainly tell us more about the kinds of changes they're making and why when they, when they make them. They let us know when watch time was becoming a bigger deal, but they probably didn't let us know beforehand. They let us know after. And I think a lot of changes, so many changes go on every day that a lot of those changes are just, they go by without any note. I, I also know that on YouTube, there's been changes so that if you're doing alternative news, you're not going to get come up in the search, just like on Google. You're not going to come right. up in search first. You're more likely to get a warning slapped over your video uh, than if you are from CNN or some mainstream news source. And yeah, I almost feel like what we're witnessing is the slow closure of these kinds of venues and spaces and the, the narrowing of, of what will be acceptable or what can be monetized, certainly, in these places. And like um, Substack has been com- is coming under attack from the New York Times lately. Indeed um, it is, yeah. And, uh, you know, I wonder if they're going to go for Patreon next, although Patreon has already had its a couple of rounds of being pushed to throw people off. That was the origin of some of these debates of Warren yeah. Southern and uh, it's going down, being banned in 2016. And they got rid of a lot of sex related stuff too off of Patreon at one point, didn't they? Did, am oh, I did they? Correctly? Maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought there was a time where on Patreon you could go like and get erotic comics or maybe even nudes or something. And, and that got pushed off the. Of Patreon. Oh, okay. Yes, I do remember. Yeah, yeah. It's very fuzzy, but I remember hearing about that. I mean, yeah. I think I think in the case of uh, Substack, you've no doubt seen this thing, the super follow feature that's going to be introduced to Twitter. Mm-hmm. All of these platforms are going to make some type of a scramble to basically prevent people from hopping onto other platforms or or bringing their talent elsewhere. But it doesn't it doesn't necessarily seem like I think we're just too far gone. I think we're too far gone for it. Yeah, but so the the wager is going to become like big picture here. What is the left-wing political speech that we would like to preserve, you know, because when these really bad actors from the right get deplatformed like, well, fuck them. Uh <laughs> I hate those guys. Uh but yeah. but I do want to preserve political speech. So it's it's a fine line of like when is that threshold crossed that you have to defend your political opponent to preserve it for yourself in this type of arms race? Um but it's I, I feel like we're at that point now where a lot of these was, guys are demonetized always, or gone or I was always a free speech absolutist on this front. Mm. Like when Alex Jones was deplatformed, mm. I was against it. Well, even though I, I I didn't like Alex Jones and even though I thought he was a right. dangerous person. I mean, if he had been found guilty of defamation from the parents Oh God, yeah, yeah. Um, if he'd been found guilty of that and been barred from creating future content or, or had to pay out or been made bankrupt by it, I would have been fine with that. But for these private corporations to decide that he was suddenly beyond the pale, kind of on a whim, I thought that it was a dangerous sign and that we were, that was too much power for these institutions to take. Well, um, it's, it's, it's dangerous, but um, I mean, do you, are you an absolutist absolutist? Like, I mean, how, how far is absolutist? <laughs> well, like are you don't like, allow I'm, ISIS I'm, on YouTube. Like, like there is some limit to it. Right. Right. right obviously. But I'm like with Noam Chomsky. So it's like with YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, it's all a little difficult because on the one hand, you don't want to demand that the, all these platforms just get filled up with porn. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's you know, the, yeah. Anyone goes for total free speech. You're going to, going to get 
inundated with yeah, just race to the to the bottom yeah. on all these things. So you want them to be able to have some community standards and some to be able to curate the content to fit the platform, right? So already you're giving away the idea this is truly just open for any shit you want to post. There's going to be some community standards, but when it comes to there's going to be some platform specific standards too. That's fine. But when it comes to uh, big open platforms like YouTube or Facebook or Twitter to be censoring political speech based on it being not, you know, not based on its nudity or it's uh, some sort of obvious community standard around offensiveness, but based on just it being the wrong speech. Like let's say it's Holocaust denial. If you're going to get rid of that, which is not illegal in this country, in the United States, then I think you're beginning to tread into an area which is really a problem. Unless you're broken up, unless you're not sure. not monopolizing yeah. the space. I mean, if there were, if there was left wing YouTube that only took left wing content and was like edited, well, there's people who would choose what was posted there. I would be fine with that, right? There, and, I mean, there is left-wing YouTube, but the network effects are just not there, right? Like there, you could go to right. Means TV or something like that, and you could watch like, I don't know, 14 hours of video or something, <laughs> something yeah, like I that. I mean, it's just, you know. YouTube yeah. that's on YouTube, but YouTube isn't left-wing. Yeah. But like yeah. if it was truly like a, a, a channel that, if it had its own identity at YouTube, when I think of YouTube, I think of, you know, liberalism or I think of whatever their political viewpoint would be, like an opinion-based platform and you go there just the same way you pick up a magazine and know and ahead of time yeah i'm getting a left-wing magazine i'm getting a right-wing magazine i'm getting a general interest magazine and there might um, be a few channels or contributing authors yeah, but you have a right, general yeah. sense of yeah yeah but that I, would be can a I ask very you though so I'm, I'm this is this is what i'm i'm curious about because i i tasked myself with talking to a left-wing channel that had been deboosted, deprioritized mysterious shadow band uh whatever that is Right. And then I've been looking, uh, I've been messaging people and trying to find out like, okay, who actually has this happened to? Like, I know it happened to me. I know it happened to Brad. We're both politically left wing, but the stuff we were posting was not like explicitly left wing political speech. We didn't get sh shadow banned for saying that like people should organize in their workplace, for example. Right. And in, in the example of uh, your experience, what you got flagged for that allegedly or may or may not have contributed to a decreased amount of traffic to your channel, it was a clip of Alex Jones. So again, the question yeah. for me is still up in the air of like, okay, these really bad actors from the right, like, haha, fuck them, like get them off the platform. But, you know, should we be free speech warriors defending the left-wing political speech if four years after 2016, nobody has actually been uh, uh, deplatformed for it? Like excluding an example of like your you know, an Antifa guy throwing a firebomb or something like that. Like, obviously that is over the lines, but what is right. the general left-wing speech that we're trying to protect? Is that really in danger? Well, Crime Think was removed from Facebook and the people who got removed from um, Facebook that I know were not quoting Alex Jones. Um, and I don't even know it was if it was the Alex Jones clip or something I said in the video that got it removed or the topic of reset. Um mm -hmm. I do know that I have never, ever been censored because I said something like, uh, Marx was right. We need a working class revolution to change this country and the world. No one's, right. you know, not, that's not going to get 
suppressed in this country on those platforms now. But on the other hand, if you can't quote a right-wing thinker, even to critique him, then you're limiting left-wing right. speech right there because you're not allowing the dialectical approach to understanding politics to proceed. You're just saying, here are the dogmas. We can't think them through um, by, by looking to the opposition. Like you can't quote William F. Buckley and, you know, without you know, that's <laughs> probably not going to happen. But so, so on the one hand, I do think that even if it was just right wing channels that primarily got hit, it would still be worth protecting the right to speech on these platforms from a left position, even if we weren't the immediate victims of the of, of the suppression. I do think also, though, and I don't know specific examples on YouTube, except, you know, the surfs just kept getting demonetized. You should talk to them. Did they really? They okay. Getting, yeah. The surfs just every once in a while, their channel will be completely removed and then they'll go to. Um, on YouTube or on Twitch? On YouTube. Hmm. Um, They're mainly and, set uh, up on Twitch, though. They are now. So, yeah. Okay. Well, but maybe it's because they kept getting removed. <laughs> well, they, they they started on YouTube. Then they discovered that Twitch streaming was easier and more lucrative. So they went to, to Twitch. And uh, and then so they've been on. But now that you they're on both. Their Twitch yeah, stuff yeah. is reformatted for YouTube. And that's where they've been removed, as far as I know. And probably, again, it may have been in, each, in those cases that they had a video up where they were making fun of some right winger, but the, they got flagged. I also think though, that they were maybe removed for bullying. Um, I've like, heard of like, that too. Yeah. Yeah. If for, you're but, criticizing, oh, it's a, uh, you're cyber bullying or, <laughs> right. or if yeah. you say, you know, white people suck, that might be racism. Right. Like, right. It, you're thrown off. Um, uh, also like, I, I, Amy Therese, I don't know if you know who she is. Of course. Yeah. She, she's on, po- uh, she does a podcast called what's left. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, I, I've been, I've known of her since she was on uh, Adam Proctor's show um, before what's left, um, Dead Pundits, the Dead Pundit Society. I'm, again, I'm not a huge fan of her. She is kind of controversial. I'm, I don't hate her the way some people do, but I, I you know, I, I don't think everything she's doing on Twitter is worthwhile. Let's just put it that way. But she was thrown off Twitter for saying, quote, Elizabeth Warren needs to be beaten. Yeah, yeah. So that is, um, right. Uh, that specific example. Uh, so I'm, I'll preface this with I'm not a fan of her stuff, either, particularly. But yeah. that is a very bad faith application of the terms of service. Because in the right. context of the thread, it was something like, she needs to be beaten electorally, and then it's a, a misreading or something like that. But right. so in that specific example, one is tempted to think that there is some type of an internal rating system that when you fly too close to the sun too many times, you know, it's like uh, uh, internal strikes or something like that. So maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't that specific tweet, but it was that there was a bunch of uh, double entendres in the past and they're like, all right, that's one too far. We're going to take you off this platform. She's right. also still on Twitter is my understanding. Yeah, right? well... She's not on Twitter as herself, but I think she's on. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so, I mean, Alex Jones <laughs> would not be allowed to do what she's doing. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. So she's not been banned the same way that uh, Jones is, or Trump has been now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, I'll, I mean, I'll I'll say this. I like I like um, some of the episodes that they do. Uh, I think Angela is very interesting. Um, I'm glad that that discourse is out there, and I very often disagree with the tweets that she puts on Twitter. But I appreciate but, but the Angela conversations. On the show now? 
is Angela um, Nagel uh, on the well, they've done a number of episodes um, that I was listening to when I was in my mom's basement uh, a couple months ago. That's a different <laughs> channel. That's a different arc of the show. So I, I, I have an adult apartment now. Um, I don't live with my mom anymore. But uh, I was listening. That is the ideal target demographic of uh, Amy Therese, which is um, an angry white man who is disenfranchised with the left who lives with his mother. That's, uh, that's <laughs> yeah, it right yeah. there. Um, yeah. But I, I appreciate that as a countervailing uh, force to a lot of the other um, uh, pop, more popular left-wing conversations. But let me, um, if I can steer us into uh, a slightly different topic here, because I yeah. wanted to throw a few more things at you, trying to be conscious of our time here. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, absent of the analytics and your channel uh, uh, age range and, and brackets and that kind of stuff, who do you have in mind when you're making these videos? Are you Are you posting them thinking of I mean, some of them are literally conversations that you had on left book. Are you thinking of Politogram when you write these scripts? You know, who is the zero books reader that you have in mind? That's a good question. Um, well, we have the audience that we know is out there and that we know has certain interests. We've done some analysis of it. And so, like, I do want to get them to click early on every video because the sooner the core audience responds to a video in a thumbnail, the more the algorithm will respond and the more it will be pushed to a bigger audience. So I do think about that. Although I probably don't think about it in terms of the audience members themselves enough. I used to work um, as a content creator for like a law firm and things like that. And I had meetings where we would sit down and go, who's our client, you know, and, and draw pictures of different kinds of clients. And I've had a similar meeting now, like last month we went through and did the same thing for zero books. And it was kind of a funny situation. Um, So who do I think of as our core audience? I think of them as mostly white, uh, mostly young, possibly graduate students or grad, grad school dropouts. Um, (laughs) you know, or college educated, but think and and who haven't gone to grad school yet, you know, might be one day headed there are interested, um, people who watch contrapoints, you know, probably who listen to Chapo. Those are, that's our core audience. And it's unfortunately very male. Um, And I don't, you know, I'm not doing much to to try to correct that at the moment, although I am trying to get honest to be less white. Um, but, uh, you know, not like I want to get rid of the audience we have, but to add more people of, of color into the mix. Well, um, if I can, if I can just throw yeah. something in here to your favor is that specifically on YouTube in the last few years, there's been an incredible lack of messaging for young white men who are sucked down these right wing rabbit holes. So right. your channel is very effective in debunking those talking points. And the example of Jordan Peterson, we laid out and yada, right, yada. Right. Yeah. Um, and because that's how we started, that really did build up an audience yeah. of those kinds of people. And also, yeah. you know, I'm a, a white Gen Xer. It's not a white guy Gen Xer. It's not too surprising that I would relate to that kind of audience. Um, mm-hmm. I have three sons and, and, and a daughter. So the majority of the kids I've raised are, are boys. And, you know, it's just, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's who I think of first. Like, what kinds of things would left book be interested in? If it yeah. still existed, mm-hmm. it's something I'm thinking of. But then, 
when I actually think about like, what am I going to write? What's the, not just what's going to be in the thumbnail or how am I going to frame this, but what I'm going to write. It's usually just, what am I confused about? What am I trying to mm-hmm. figure out in the terms of my hopefully deepening understanding of the struggle for socialism? And so, uh, you know, sometimes those miss completely uh, because what I'm obsessing about is not what everyone's thinking about. Like, you know, what is the relationship between early 20th century technocrats and socialism as we've as is broadly understood you know how how are they different that's probably not what most people are thinking about and i don't know and, that sounds great to me that's, that yeah, sounds interesting yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let, let me ask you so uh lash is an interesting character mm-hmm. um you did a while ago um segueing from lash lash is i think a, a specific millennial phenomena and a social media phenomena what have you um you did a video about max sterner Max Stirner, um, burgeoning uh, left-wing avatar around 2017, mm-hmm. uh, in contrast to Pepe at the time, ancient history. But um, needless to say, there was a tremendous amount of youth enthusiasm about Max Stirner. I did mm-hmm. a talk at uh, Left Forum in 2019 with a number of friends, and there was a, I think, I think she was 17 or something like that. Her parents mm-hmm. had brought her and um, she came up to me afterwards and was talking about Max Sterner. So uh, right. needless to say, that is a, a politogram bait. I wonder right. if not represented in the analytics, but um, I know there are young people in the, you know, under 18 Zoomer age bracket who are middle schoolers, high schoolers who are avidly consuming this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're being represented in the analytics. I don't know why, but Max Sterner well, would seem to be a a play to invite those people into the channel. Is it? Yeah, am I misreading I mean, that? Max Sterner is kind of no. I don't think you're misreading that. Although, look, that was a decision that was made not at the level of the YouTube channel, but mm. on the level of publishing. Because the other thing we do is we decide what books we're going to publish, right? Right. And, right. We'll, and that will send the video channel off in certain directions because books come up. We have to promote them. We promote them through the channel. So the Max Sterner video was directly in response to the needing to publicize the book that we published on Max Sterner, which did real well. Um, and probably if I, you know, I if my response to Max Sterner wasn't just to repeat verbatim Marx's critique of him, um, <laughs> I would have <laughs> I would have done more of it with that. Um, so sometimes my own biases gets in the way of marketing, uh, although. The other thing that drives the content I create, I should confess this, is that when a book sells more than 500 copies, we we do another round of publicity on it. And I often enough will pick those books to mention on the channel, which is mm-hmm. why capitalist realism is mentioned almost every month. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I was going to, I was going to ask you, um, where should I send the invoice for all of these memes we've been making? I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've seen, but our, our discord has produced probably a hundred capitalist realism memes in the last year. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm sure, I'm sure that's what's selling all the books. It's not yeah, that it's it, a, a great yeah. text and it's very popular already. It was the meme bootstrapping that really did it. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And what you should do is send that bill to the Fisher estate. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Uh, um, no, I, I, uh, so I'm a big fan of that book and it, it, you know, the thing about Fisher's capitalist realism from my perspective is that as a book, it's worth reading. It's definitely got a lot of, uh, interesting ideas and it was critically important, but as a meme, it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and 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 that what what I mean by that is capitalist realism. The phrase capitalist realism, the idea, it really can just lead to any into any kind of anti-capitalist propaganda you want to make. And so I find referring to capitalist realism at the beginning of a video and then talking about whatever project is on my mind is really easy. I don't have to sit down <laughs> and, and reread capitalist realism and represent uh, his ideas when I, when I talk about capitalist realism. And that's also why I think the book is so successful because it is a meme. It is, it, you, you can't pick it up and it, it, and it reflects a general attitude rather than uh, a, a very, very specific critique. But yeah, I also think the the, yeah. the real book of his that I think uh, develops capitalist realism in a way that's deeper and 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 really more useful possibly overall is Ghosts of My Life, which I think says um, uh, more about uh, the static nature of society. And all the other thing is, after Trump, it seemed like Mark Fisher's day might be done too, because he felt like he was talking about this neoliberal moment as permanent and like something we couldn't break through that we couldn't break from within capitalism that this was what capitalism was now was this neoliberal reality and then trump came into the picture and the new nationalism came forward and and um the neoliberal order started to disintegrate but what was making it disintegrate were movements from the right right and so but in fact you know, Trump was more of a neoliberal. It was, yeah. Than, than anyone yeah. thought he would be. And Biden is back and Obama is back in a way and neoliberalism is back. Um, so, well, I, let's I not, let's not. Fisher's going to keep being relevant. For a while. <laughs> unfortunately, unfor yeah, yeah. yeah, that's funny. Um, I mean, I think uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count uh, our neoliberal chickens before they hatch, so to speak. I think that um, four years from now or three years and nine months or whatever it happens to be, uh, we could be in a, a horrific situation in the, you know, the, the neo-federated patchwork of uh, Tucker Swanson Inc. or something like that. And uh, people will be like, oh yeah, we are definitely not neoliberalism anymore. Um, yeah, in terms of uh, Ghosts of My Life, Fisher works on a level where you're able to take this affective cultural layer and then kind of lift up the veil for, for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a very effective on-ramp and I think that's why the meme is so successful as well, especially in the context of counter-messaging, that I've sent the book to a number of very right-leaning young men who read it and they're like, oh, this guy's totally right. He's really, he's based, he's sick, you know. Uh, so they're, they're very much into it. And it's, um, it has the, this rare ability that is able to refine a sentiment into a political critique, which is uh, seemingly very simple, but it's actually quite rare. Yeah. I think that you're absolutely right. And and there's, there's another thing that I hope that the Zero Books brand overall tr occasionally is able to replicate, that we are able to like um, work on the level of both affective kind of cultural significance and then get to a critique from that. And that uh, the impression I want people that encounter the channel for the first time to have is that this is a group of people this is a, a channel that's putting forward irreverent, but maybe a little heady content that, uh, but we're not going to be scolding anyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And then after that, it's like, then, then it, I want people to walk away saying, Oh wow. The world I'm living in is riven with problems that have never quite been overcome that from the its inception 
of modernity, we've had this struggle to transcend capital, to transcend their own, their own terms of our society. And when I'm participating in that critique, I'm not just being, you know, uh, a guy who says, fuck you, dad. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can actually say, hey, dad, I understand what you're going through, but you didn't get there. Let's let me look at, you know, do an imminent critique. Let me see what dad was trying to do and do it better. That's the way to really kill the fathers, but to, to overcome the problems <laughs> you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're going to end on a note that um, Marxism is about being angry at your dad and having blue hair and uh, septum <laughs> piercing or something like that. No, okay. it's, it's, uh, not, it's not about that. It's, it's not. <laughs> you, can, you cannot be mad at your dad and still be a Marxist. And my own son, I hope. <laughs> uh, I'm knocking on steel instead of wood, but uh, is that is an, is an example. I mean, I was dragged to a park in Portland where the Pacific Northwest Co uh, Communist Group was meeting for the first time, and it was being organized by my kid. And there was a bunch of people, and I, if I, when I, they were all there, a bunch of white guys mostly. There were some other races there too, but they were mostly white guys, definitely all guys. Um, uh, showing up to stand under a, a canopy in the park while it was raining and discuss the future of their communist reading group in Portland. And I looked around and said, these are zero books, readers and viewers. This is exactly what I'm reaching. <laughs> I feel like or I follow a dozen of them on Politogram. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me ask you, because we're, we're almost at the time here. Um, yeah. Do you have any uh, future upcoming content that you want to plug? Any Anything to throw out there before we sign off? Well, I, okay. When will this be coming out? I'm going to take probably uh, two weeks to do due diligence on what numbers we can publicize, probably put it out on the, maybe the first. Um, yeah. Uh, well, okay. Well, there's someone who I've been working with, who's probably going to, who's definitely writing a book for us, who I haven't made any official announcement about, you know, he told me that he'd have me have the first chapter to me by the end of February and that we can make an announcement then. I figured the beginning of April is long enough that I'm going to go ahead and say Matt Chrisman is going to be writing a book for Zero Books. Uh, it's going to be called Behold a Fail Horse. So you're getting a scoop. And if and if if it comes out before we've actually officially announced and before I've gotten everything from Matt, well, so be it. Um, but that's that's a big deal for us. I, uh, I'm a big fan of Matt Chrisman. I, I'm a fan of Chapo. Uh, the other thing is that I think eventually, maybe starting in April, I really want to focus on the Grand Gris, uh and do a series of videos um, about the ideas that would be in, in Marx's Grand Gris and um, a Grand Grisa. I, I'm terrible. Uh, I, I read these things and I have to, before I do the videos, I have to try to learn how to pronounce things. And I often it's, it. <laughs> it's, um, a, it's a good barometer for how... Um how much of a nerd someone is of like, <laughs> if you say Walter Benjamin or Walter Benjamin, like the fucking Benjamin people. No, <laughs> right. no, get so out of here. I'm not, I'm not one of those. Um, so in any case, uh, I want to do a deep dive into political economy or continue it and develop it. So the YouTube videos that I'll be creating will most likely, if I do what I'm planning, have that, that aspect to them. And we're working overall on making the channel more accessible as an explainer channel and less reliant on long form interviews. Not that we're going to get rid of all the interviews, but we want to create content that uh, explains the left 
to new viewers. And also the great thing about creating that kind of content is it makes the people who are producing the content rethink their own positions and clarify mm-hmm. those positions for themselves. So that's um, something that uh, we should be doing in the, in the months ahead. And of course, if I can, I'll try to get back on come town again. <laughs> Maybe. That's a nice way to think about it. That um, there's what I imagine is like a, a small group of Gen X people rethinking um, their experience with the left and then kind of passing it on to, to younger viewers. And uh, yeah, yeah, maybe uh, people like me who never made it to grad school. I was rejected from three grad schools, by the way. Just, oh, really? Just, yeah. As, uh, as we're, I mean, they're, they're all like MFA. So we're millennials yeah. and Gen X uh, <laughs> at, at Zero Books. We've got two millennials now and two Gen Xers. Um, so Derek Varn and myself are the spectrum of Gen Xers. And then Ashley Frawley and, and Jean Bajalan are the two millennials. But I, we should get a Zoomer on staff. And I'm sorry to hear you were rejected from grad, stu- grad school. Which, which ones were you rejected from? Uh, don't, don't worry about it. I'm doing better than all of them. And uh, a lot of them <laughs> knew my name when I went to interview. And I've, uh, uh, qu- I'm certainly not butthurt about it at all, as you can tell okay. from the tone of my voice. Um, yeah. yeah, I was rejected from uh, the MFA program at Yale, at Columbia, and at Bard, which are, you know, well, those the, the best all, MFA uh, programs you could yeah, go right. to. But if you're yeah. going to be rejected from somewhere, that that would, you know, those are the places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Anyway, anyway, sorry. This is this is not about uh, it's not about me. It's not a therapy session here. Um, In the late '90s, I applied to and got accepted into the New School's um, MFA program in creative mm-hmm. writing. And oh, by the way. You told me at the outset that you were a fan of my writing. What have you read? I just want to test. Bash, that. bash, revolution. Yeah, right behind me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So I got into the new school's MFA program of creative writing, but didn't go because I already had two kids at that point and moving to New York with the family yeah. uh, and going to the new school when I didn't have any financial aid or anything was just beyond me. But um, so you, there are different ways of getting rejected. You can get accepted and rejected at the same time, which, uh, but I've always regretted not going to the new school because, um, you know, it has a pretty good reputation on all that on the left, particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the, the idea is to fail up and um, yeah. Yeah. Make your which own way outside of the institutions. Told my first yeah. short story after deciding not to go to the new school. I sold, sold yeah. my first professional short story. It sounds like you got rejected from Yale, but now soon enough, you're going to create your own digital version of that institution online. And <laughs> exactly. figure out how to yeah. Be, yeah. not be shadow banned. <laughs> ideally, ideally. Thank you.